Hello, this is Grad School Grad, a podcast about policy and international relations graduate programs in the United States. So for today's episode, I want to talk about warning signs uh, for a policy or IR grad program. And for this, I'm thinking about uh, a prospective student and just trying to figure out what are some things to watch out for that might be areas of concern. I want to highlight these are kind of like areas of concern. They're not exactly uh, definite uh, reasons in and of itself to completely negate a school. I would say probably almost every school has uh, at least one of these uh, warning signs. And the real uh, the real way you should really think about these if is if one of these warning signs really matter to you or if there's lots of these warning signs, then a school might be concerning for you. So I can speak to um, this topic coherently because I myself was a student ambassador at my graduate program, and I'm very familiar about how we were coached, how we operated, the events we did, and how we marketed somewhat paper over the cracks. And then also I had lots of conversations with IR and policy grad students as family members, colleagues, uh, bosses, uh, coworkers, and everything in between. So I can speak to uh, this topic decently. All right. So first off, on my list, um, I, it would be concerning if uh, a grad program has a lot of emphasis on programming that is meant for undergrads. And what I mean by this is like, if, if a grad program offers a pathway for their grad students, and they market this pathway to get involved in activities in which the primary population attendance is undergraduate students. Um, I actually seen this quite a bit, and it, it, it re- just to explain what programs I'm talking about. It's like most grad or IR and policy programs are part of a university, and as part of a university, their largest student population, generally speaking, is undergraduates. So they have to put together programming, uh, academic, professional, social, to a certain extent, um, that are catered for the undergrad population. But a lot of times they basically don't have any restrictions on if grad students come play, and sometimes they can't be. And what happens at some universities is that you have these really cool-sounding programs. Um, usually they're tied to politics or a niche area a niche academic area that uh, is just generally interesting. And and the grad program uh, kind of latches onto that as a marketing tool. And even and as part of student experience. And when people come to the grad program, people do participate. But this is problematic because a lot of these programs, they're, when they're catered for undergrads, you know, I would say for most grad students, if not all grad students, I shouldn't really be uh, particularly interested to, or it wouldn't be the smartest thing, but you'd be particularly interested in hanging out with undergrads or something, almost all undergrads, uh, for a significant part of their extracurricular activities. First of all, the, the opportunity for, to grow professionally and mat- maturity is simply not there. The interests in this programs, some of it might be shared, but, you know, there's different, um, just different, different interests and in what people want out of it. And then the third thing is that the networking benefits from this, uh, from such programs, I mean, I'm not going to say they're non-existent. They might be there, 
but uh, generally speaking, the net the networking benefits aren't really that impactful for grad students. And for a lot of time, I would even dare say it's an utter waste of time. There might be some unique uh, reasons for some people why it might make sense, but I would say for a vast majority of people who I know participated in such programs, they come out of it pretty much saying, I can't believe I wasted my time hanging out with a b- bunch of undergrads. But schools market it because, some hey, these programs sound cool. And, it should be concerned if that's a good chunk of the marketing. All right. The second thing is if there's an extensive focus on opportunities not uh, directly organized by the program itself or the school that hosts the program. So what I'm speaking to are opportunities at different universities or at schools uh, or, or they're hosted by schools within the university, but not by the school that hosts the policy or IR grad program. So the reason why this is problematic is that uh, what the school's pretty much saying is like, hey, we don't have these resources, but and we acknowledge we don't have these resources, but they're available, so you should admire how they're available in XYZ ways. The reason why this is uh, cha- this, this becomes a problem is a lot of times when a school does control uh, opportunities, it's, it may not be accessible to students. So, for example, uh, if I, as a IR grad student, wanted to take uh, a class in the law school, first of all, if I could take it or not depends on um, if there's leftover seats from the law school. And then it's if uh, my schedule works with whatever the schedule of the law school and all the logistical craziness. So I'm not exactly first pick the litter. Second, um, it's that just because I go do stuff at law school or take a class at law school doesn't mean I have access to all the career opportunities at the law school and all the student and social benefits of the law school. Uh, I actually seen people get in trouble because uh, they're from one program and then they try to take advantage of the career opportunities and social opportunities of another program but yeah, it, they, they aren't uh, basically allowed to. I mean, there's a reason why schools have their own programming. Um, so I mean, this I saw, I thought was a little bit troubling when I uh, went to visit Fletcher, Tufts Fletcher, and a lot of times everyone bragged about, oh, you get to take classes at Harvard. And we're almost like Harvard because you get to take classes there. Harvard's a different university, and. Now, I get it. People want to talk about Harvard because Harvard's very prestigious, but Tufts Fletcher is not Harvard. So um, just, to, just to highlight that concern. So the third warning sign is if when, you know, when a person meets students, there is consistent lack of executable ambition uh, with the students encountered. I want to highlight that the key word there is executable ambition. And the reason why I say is that, like, look, I think there's a difference between students who say, hey, I want to save the planet. I don't know how I'm going to do that, but I just want to save the planet. I think policy school is going to get me there. I, I met policy students that actually do say that. Um, that would be concerning because that's ambition, but it's not uh, ambition where there's a pathway. I think a good, a good student would be like, hey, I want to... Uh, Again, I want to get involved in international development. 
So I'm going to use this research fellowship to uh, use it use it as a springboard to get into this uh, program evaluation uh, internship, which will use as a springboard to get me into uh, activities in XYZ country, and so I can partner with blah 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 organization. That that is something that is cool and executable and relevant. And those are the type of students that if you meet a lot of, you want to meet. But if you meet students who say something that's pie in the sky, they have no idea how to get there, or you meet students who um, have no idea what they want to do a lot of times and are clueless, that's obviously a warning sign. Now, I want to highlight I mentioned that I mentioned before in another episode that there's quite a few people that come to policy school with no idea what, what they want to do, and there's people that come to policy school, I'm sorry, policy and IR school, and because this is true for IR as well, um, who uh, essentially um, have this mentality that it's okay to be okay and they don't need to have any lofty ambitions. Again, that's fine too. Uh, but that being said, in my opinion, it's better to have access to opportunities and strong peers than to uh, do, do without strong peers and then find yourself wanting strong peers when the time is right for you. All right. The fourth warning sign would be if the students uh, that day, day being marketing brags, brags about uh, or missions brags about, uh, aren't really impressive once you peel the onion back one layer. Um, so a lot of times when I've seen uh, admissions or marketing brag about students, it's either one of three things. Um, and sometimes they really are really impressive, but other times they aren't really, but they just look impressive. And honestly, uh, if someone uses LinkedIn and just looks the students they uh, brag up on LinkedIn and you know, talk to someone who knows this, uh, their professional background, like the, not the individual personally, but just knows the contours of, uh, the space they come from, um, there's a pretty good idea to know if they're really impressive or not. And even you don't even have to know the space, professional space come from that well. So a lot of times it's just easily able to figure it out with just LinkedIn search. So three ways um, that I've seen this happen is, number one, uh, they put someone who came from Ivy League school or other master's degree. So a person went to Harvard uh, or a famous uh, European graduate program uh, whatever. Uh, I, I, there's one person I think I saw with like three other degrees, all from impressive schools, um, before they went to policy school. So that's all well. They went to great schools. But then if you look at LinkedIn and then you look at their jobs, and if it's a little bit suspicious, you your spider sense is probably right. So I have seen them put someone from Harvard up there, but their career is clearly not, hasn't really gone well. Or I've seen someone they put up there, but they essentially work for a family firm. So, you know, great, they, that's fine and well, but uh, it doesn't really demonstrate their ability to perform in competitive marketplace when you just essentially work for your mom and dad in a family firm. And, and by the way, this does happen, but. And they could very well be good people, but I would offer like, hey, it's not really a good sign of uh, just 
ability uh, beyond the brand name of whatever school they're associated with. So this, the second way I seen them brag is they brag about someone who had a really awesome job. So it's like a great brand uh, of a job, of company, major institution, whatever. But then you go look on LinkedIn and you realize um, there it's essential examples I've seen of someone coming out of grad school and they might have gone to like a brand name company or organization, but the job they took is equivalent uh, to what someone would get straight from undergrad. But the, per- the person being bragged on has like five years work experience. So there you, there you go. Um, and then the third that in which they brag about something is they brag about people doing things. Um, so being like really, really involved in, in things, whether it be related to school, uh, what, whether it be related to internships. I remember when I was, uh, at open houses, they brought this student who was working three jobs at the same time, uh, while, while going to school full time. First of all, I think that's problematic when they brag about someone like that. Uh, you know, I don't think that's healthy. Uh, but then you, um, but then you know, a lot of times you look someone like that, look on LinkedIn is like, look, they might be really involved in student events, but they don't have like a strong professional basis, uh, to, you know, couch, couch on beyond that. Or again, they are have multiple interesting internships in which it's very obvious that it was politically connected, but ultimately what I'm getting at is that Yes, they might do something interesting, but at the end of the day, it's not about individually attributable performance. Uh, it's just, there's something a lot to be said about hustling, but hustling with a purpose and not, not just grabbing the low-hanging fruit. And the reason why all this is important is that um, if the marketing and admissions people are bragging about the wrong people, then that should be a bad sign that the best people or who they think is the best people might not be going to the, the places that they could be or people from another school are going to. And that should be concerning about the ability for the school to deliver uh, on edu- uh, education outcomes. Okay, number five uh, warning sign or is... Uh, if career services is unable to give detailed career services outcomes. So, uh, honestly, I think the two schools that do the best when it comes to career services outcomes are Harvard Kennedy School and University of Chicago Harris. I'm sure there's some good ones other than that, but those are two that I think are pretty gold standard. They have a, they have a breakdown of who goes to what. Um, they talk about roles and they talk about uh, organizations. And then uh, I'm pretty sure the Harvard one, at least they used to give like average salary. Um, so again, if it's this is important because it shows what career services has to hide or doesn't hide. Um, a, a school with a strong uh, student body and a strong career services will, you know, they have nothing to hide or they have less to hide. And they're very, they can be very open about the outcomes of their students.
a school that has a lot to hide, you'll see that their career services outcomes uh, material looks very marketing-esque. There's lots of mysterious things about it. Uh, and the numbers are very broad. They won't give details on roles. Or it's kind of like confusing on like what. So they'll only talk about, we get roles like analyst. We get roles like consultant. We have people that go to this company, that company. But they don't give the entire picture of uh, and what's the breakdown of uh, how long how long people uh, how roughly what's the percentages of employment um, after anywhere from three to six months uh, after graduation and what's the breakdown in groups and like for that specific year what were all the roles that were acquired um, Harvard's has like all the roles that are acquired so you kind of can see um, and where people go year by year. Um, so again, I think that's something to consider. If there's something to hide, well, maybe there's challenges with the school and how well they perform in the, the career market. Uh, I will say some schools are really too small to have robust career services. So at that point, it's just about like how open and honest career services is. And I think you know, most adults can just sniff that out. The sixth one is, you know, entering grad school, I probably wouldn't have thought about this coming out of grad school. I think about this a lot, which is if inclusion, a warning sign is that if inclusion diversity is not something that's acted upon beyond talking points. And, and notice how I said the word inclusion diversity and not diversity inclusion. And that's because, look, uh, most IR and policy grad programs are by its nature diverse. Um, not, not some are better than others, but diversity does not mean inclusion. I would say a lot of policy IR programs have the trap in that they recruit lots of diverse people. And I'm not going to say all even good at it, but I'd say somewhat diverse, but they don't haven't figured out how to, uh, get their students to be inclusive of each other in a, in a highly scaled way. Having a cohort system really helps. I would say most schools that have a cohort system are generally more inclusive. Um, but uh, there are it's not necessarily an absolute rule. And then in terms of diversity, another way to think about it is like, is a school just, uh, in terms of international students, always targeting the same one or two or three countries? So, you know, it, it was a challenge for me when I went to policy school where like four, 45 to 50% of the international students were from one country. I know that my policy school has done better and diversified, um, but there's some, you know, but a lot of schools, a lot of times just hit the same two or three countries and it doesn't really lend to like a diversity of experiences, diversity of thoughts. Um, Obviously, diversity lends more than international students. You can talk about in terms of background, uh, identity, so on and so forth. But ultimately, from an academic perspective, I think it's good to have a diversity of backgrounds as long as there's inclusion to make sure that diversity is appreciated. All right, number seven warning sign is if a lot of professors you encounter are persistently focused on old older academic work and look seem to be out of touch with the current job market um 
this is actually something that um, it happens quite a bit. Now, I want to clarify. There's nothing wrong with uh, a professor, especially if you're a Nobel Prize winner, talking about work that is decades old, that is still relevant to the current job market. That That's all fair game. But what I have found uh, in policy and IR schools that are challenging, so to speak, uh, or by challenging, I mean ch- challenge, uh, challenged, is when you have a very strong contingent of professors who did work, uh, could have been very good work, uh, a decade plus, I would even say two decades plus ago. And it, the times have changed to the point where its relevancy is very limited. And they really haven't done any seminal work since then. Um, and, and they still focus on that. And they still talk about the world as is two decades ago. Not as a point comparison or a jumping off point, but as their main point of reference. It's fine to have one or two or a few professors like that, but when there's contingent professors who have that mindset, that's a warning sign that the school it still thinks it's pumping out thinks still thinks that its role is to pump out academics and not professionals, and that should be concerning because uh, for IR and policy grad programs are professional schools at least in the United States, and they should be focused on pre- preparing people for professional roles in their respective spaces and not be stuck on uh, an academic favorite thought of a professor that um, honestly no longer carries weight in today's world. I remember uh, a, a highly prized professor who essentially focused on the state government before the internet. Don't get me wrong, it's it's, it would be interesting if she was a history professor, but the person was a policy professor and basically giving us guidance on how to manage state government in the digital era while the citation or professional academic points of emphasis were pre-digital era. And it was really frustrating. All right. Um... So next up, a warning sign would be uh, if a straight the straight from undergrad population is more than twenty percent. Mm. So whether you are straight from undergrad or not, or not, this should be concerning because I would say a good part, good chunk of importance about going to grad school is getting exposed to people with uh, different professional backgrounds, and also. Um, just having a strong learning environment in general. And the reality is that those straight from undergrad, however academically great they are, or how many good internship experience they are, don't have professional backgrounds. And, and I'll be honest, I, I count people with one year professional background as legitimately having professional background because they've seen it, they taste it, they know what the working world is like. Um, but those with zero next to zero, uh, they, their contribution in the short run, at least, really isn't, uh, that great in the academic setting or is limited in the academic setting. And that should be concerning of a degraded student, student learning experience. If there's a large 
straight from undergrad population. Um, now, I will say one school that I really respect, uh, University of Virginia Batten School, does have a large uh, straight from undergrad population. Uh, and, but they, I would say, manage it better than most. But that's kind of like a one-time exception thing. Also, some of the British schools, um, and I know this about schools in the U.S., but just as a point comparison, some British schools are more straight from undergrad driven. Um, but again, I think there's a different cultural management perspective about that. But at least for the United States, I, if it's more than 20% straight from undergrad, I, that concerning, I would say personally, if it's more than 10% straight from undergrad, uh, that at least perked my ears up and I would want to look into it. All right. Uh, number nine, warning sign. If the grad school alumni base seems to be limited or less than active. So this is important because um, especially if you don't come from as a good of a or networked of an undergrad or previous masters, it's the grad school alumni base uh, can really mean a lot. It can really be helpful, very powerful to help you get to your career aspirations. But if the alumni base seems to be limited or just targeted towards their industry or less than active, that could be challenging. And that could also speak to other things about like, hey, why aren't they active? Um, yeah, it, what's the issue about, is there an issue about community and cohesion with the school? And yeah, that could be an area of concern. If you're spending so much time and money on a school, you know, alumni benefits matter. And if they aren't readily available, then that should be an area of concern. The last thing is whenever I tell people about this, no one really not that many will expect it, is that it should be a warning sign uh, if the students that you meet struggle to be open and honest with you. And the reason why this matters is because I would say uh, in grad school, people can easily be tempted to not to be themselves. Um, a, a lot, and this either goes one of two ways. Uh, one way is to have a superiority complex. In a more competitive environment, people... Like humble brag a lot, like to kind of like play the one upman game, which I don't, can be frustrating. It's a cause anxiety. And I don't think that's necessarily the most healthy thing in the academic environment. Uh, then there's the inferiority complex. I've also seen people, uh, who feel strong sense imposter syndrome and then just completely, uh, just get held back by their fears and concerns and can't deal with it and they just talk about how not great they are and it's a very strange thing to see someone who's really accomplished great career background um, to go to grad school and a lot of times due to the challenges of having sufficient peer support just shovel back in terms of um, feeling a sense of uh, underperformance and have this inferiority complex but either way I think either of these scenarios are not reflect not the healthiest student environment per se i think the better student help student environments i mean can't completely escape them in any student environment but the, if the core group of students are very open honest very real very plain spoken about their experience and what they want to do uh they're open they level with you the pros and cons i think that just shows that hey people here are genuine they care and they're not all they're not wall flap, at least by and large, they can uh, 
sustain the rigors of life without getting too big, too big of a head. I think that uh, if you find core students that you meet are, are just very open and honest in that angle, that's a good thing. That just shows the environment is great. The culture is uh, manageable and helpful. So what I want to wrap up with is ultimately at the end of the day, it's about what you care about. But I think these warning signs aren't helpful to um, just better evaluate uh, the whole range of uh, challenges from a student uh, experience and outcomes perspectives that matter to a lot of people. And at least you should think about mattering for you. All right. Thank you very much. Hope this is helpful. Looking forward to making more content for you.